Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. I'm your host, Steve Meredith, and I'm joined in studio today, as I always am, by President Wyatt. Scott, good morning. Good morning, Steve. It's a uh, cold January day as we record this, but as usual in our part of the world, if it's not actually snowing, it's bright and sunshiny with uh, beautiful clear air and crisp and easy to breathe. And So come see us in Cedar City. There's my, there's my uh, chamber of commerce for this morning. Um, anyway, we are doing a series of podcasts right now about um, a looming crisis that's um, besetting higher education. And part of what is driving this, this anticipated downturn in enrollment is demographics. That just our demographic changes in the United States, uh, particularly among those that we would ordinarily consider to be our bread and butter students, 18 to 22 year olds. And so we have joining with us today, a very special guest, the guy who actually wrote the book on which a lot of um, this information is based and, um, uh, and has created all sorts of models that, um, that are giving people in our line of work uh, a moment of pause. So, why don't we why don't we take a minute and introduce our guest? Yeah, thank you, Steve. We're so delighted to be joined today with by Dr. Nathan Graw, who is a professor of economics, the Ada M. Harrison Distinguished Professor of the Social Sciences at Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota. And uh, welcome, Nathan. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I was uh, sitting on an airplane a while ago reading your book, The Demographics and the Demand for Higher Education, and uh, the guy sitting next to me um, said, where do you work? (laughs) And he said, I can tell you must work at higher ed because nobody else would be reading a book like that. (laughs) And it uh, it wasn't a, a legal thriller or anything like that. But uh, it put us into a really interesting discussion about what's happening with uh, enrollments because he was an employee at another university in our state. Anyway, um, welcome so very much. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Um, what got you onto this topic? Where did what was the uh, impetus for you to take this subject of um, higher education enrollments and and so forth? Is is one of the leading issues for you. So I was a, I've been a professor at Carleton for just over 20 years now. Um, but in 2009, I took a little detour for three years into the administration and was associate dean of the college. And during that time, we had a strategic planning exercise, and I was chairing one of the committees. Our president decided to kick off that exercise with some data presentations. And that was the first time, so this was roughly 2000. 11 or 12. That was the first time I saw uh, data from 
the WITI, or Western Interstate Commission for Higher Education, uh, projecting the number of high school graduates uh, by state across the country. And many in higher ed at this point will bump into those data. Uh, you can go online and see some terrific uh, state-by-state uh, depictions of, of that data if you go to WITI.org. Um, but what I saw was um, a couple things. One is that there was generally a decline in the northeast quadrant of the country in the number of projected high school graduates, and that over time, it looked like uh, the number of high school graduates was expected to take a significant tumble beginning in the mid-2020. And so it was precipitous enough of a change that my first thought was, wow, I better keep my CV in order, um, because this doesn't look good. Um, The northeast quadrant of the country is where we draw the most uh, higher ed students, at least the proportion of the population. It's our densest population of higher education institutions. And so in particular, the, the disturbance in Northeast gave me pause. But then it began, you know, I, I started kicking the question around in my head, and, and I wondered, but does this really have anything to say about the number of kids who are going to college or maybe who are going to a four-year college or a four-year college like mine? And so that was the set of questions that got me thinking about this. Can, can I do something to try to differentiate between what we might expect for, say, a community college at one end or a highly selective four-year institution uh, in the other side? Uh, can we differentiate these kinds of markets and, and what kinds of insights does that yield? Yeah, what, um, what you bring to this discussion is um, some meaning to the words enrollments are going to change. It doesn't um, really mean a whole lot to anybody until you broke that down into what does the demographics do to the elite universities? What does it do to the national ones? What does it do to the regional ones? What does it do by region? That's what becomes so fascinating about your research is that we can all see some relevance in the data for our schools, for each of us. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing to me was to see that we do all sit um, in the same market in some sense. We're, we're facing some similarities, um, but we also have some significant differences. So, for instance, the rising uh, number of adults who have college degrees, the, the legacy of the great access push that higher education has been on for a number of decades now, is going to pay an intergenerational dividend. Uh, there will be children now of parents who have college degrees. And those children are more likely to attend uh, four-year colleges in particular and more selective forms of four-year colleges in particular. So we, as a result, can expect there to be a little bit of an updraft for more selective forms of of higher ed. But where we all sit together is, um, you know, in the the backdraft of the financial crisis, young families decided that maybe it wasn't the best time to have children and fertility rates decline. And in fact, they've continued to decline uh, through at least 2018. And that means that about 18 years later, we can expect there to be a smaller population of prospective students for traditional age college. And the declines we're talking about are significant. We're talking, you know, 10 to 15 percent nationally, and in some parts of the country, much deeper than that. Um, That no matter where you are in higher ed, we can expect that in the mid-2020s, we're going to see a significant reversal. Um, so we end up um, sharing some burdens together and yet having distinct paths at the same time. Yeah, so you're referring to the Great Recession, the way we might describe it in 2008. 
exactly. And if, and if uh, financial crisis. Yeah. So if during that year um, the fertility rate drops significantly, as you say, between ten and fifteen percent, then you just play it out. Eighteen years later, when those children who weren't born aren't going to colleges and universities, and that's about twenty twenty six. And then, as that occurs with fewer students um, in the country going to college, then how does that relate to the elite universities that are recruiting? And um, I thought it was fascinating how you describe in your book that the elite universities will never likely have any issues because they can recruit nationally. And uh, and as you've yes. just as you've just said, you know, second and third generation college students are likely to go to those types of universities. So then the... Yeah, they have... Please. They have several advantages. Um, so it's certainly true that they can draw from a national market. Um, they're not geographically bound. I think most institutions, if they looked at their admissions data, would conclude that they're significantly more bound by ge- geography. Even Even institutions that are uh, ranked very highly, say, on the U.S. news list, ranked 40 or 50. If you look at what states they're drawing from, um, they don't they don't draw a representative sample from the country. I'm not sure that any institutions do, but if there are any, it would only be at the very, very tip top of the the pile. And so as a result, we, we have institutions at the top that have a little bit more um, give because they can go to different markets. But they're also uh, more selective. So they have deep application pools, and so they have the option of just dipping a little further into their pool. Um, and that, of course, only makes things a little bit tighter for uh, competing institutions that lose out on those students. Um, so there's it's another place where we all find ourselves in the same market, that um, there are overlaps between markets, and they're connected one to another so that we all sort of are chain-linked. Um, you know, I, on the flip side, I think that as we see institutions respond to declining numbers of prospective students, I wouldn't be surprised to see many institutions thinking here about private, but also increasingly public, engaging more aggressively with merit aid and discounting. Um, that kind of pressure can you know, create pressure that goes upward. You might um, you might find that you compete well with students with another institution, rather for students in the current environment. But if your competing institution starts getting aggressive with um, with discounting and offering financial aid, you may start losing students that you become accustomed to. Yeah. So if the elite schools um, have big applicant pools that they can dip down just a little bit lower in, then that affects the national schools. And if those schools respond um, similarly, then that affects the regional universities, um, which Southern Utah exactly. University is one. Right, And it was interesting, as I was sitting on the plane reading your book, sitting next to um, somebody from our flagship school in, in Utah, and he, he just said to me, yeah, our president just announced that we have intentions of growing by something like 8,000 additional students. And I thought, oh, here it comes. That's actually not great <laughs> <Yeah>. news for us. <laughs> because right. it, it appears, it's always appeared to us that um, – our flagship school has never really tried to recruit. They've just been the flagship. So whoever comes, comes. And they've had very stable, slightly growing enrollments, but not much. They're not like everybody else that's been kind of competing. Uh, 
for students. And so I thought, well, if they start competing, that's going to change things in our state a bit. And then, of course, as you know, we have in Utah um, the home of Western Governors University, which is um, has very aggressive enrollment plans. Already at 100,000 plus, 120,000 plus, I think, and, right. and a stated public goal of a million, million students, yeah. which is uh, could take all the universities in our region and, <laughs> and quite a few right. other regions. Yeah. Yeah, no, those kinds of things remind us that as much as demographics are worth attending to, Ultimately, we can't go back to the year 2012 and add kids to the birth cohort. Um, so it's something we need to be aware of, but not fixated on, because there are other factors like uh, the competition with Western governors or our retention and student success rates. These are things we actually can control. Um, and, and, of course, nothing is going to slow down the pace of change in those areas. We are likely to be confronting demographic challenges at the same time as we continue to to wrestle with these other uh, changes in higher education. In fact, we might anticipate the pace of change to increase a bit as institutions are working their way through demographic change by looking at, you know, what can we offer online options? You know, how can we be the, the institution that successfully recruits its way uh, through this tightness? Um, so I, I think it is likely to be a time of considerable change. Uh, whether we want to participate in that change or not, I guess we can decide our participation, but I suspect the the environment around us is going to choose um, is going to choose change so we're going to experience it whether we participate or not yeah, and there's nothing uh, quite more unsettling than seeing change, and we're not changing <laughs> right right <laughs> right exactly because then you're acted upon rather than acting it's uh, it's kind of scary to see where you land but one of the other interesting things about um, your book is not only this discussion about how enrollments are changing, and um, we go from the birth dearth in about 2008 that carries right through to the next uh, 18, 20-plus years, but the effect that that has on faculty. So you've got a, um, a projection um, about a reduction in the number of faculty. And, and there's an interesting discussion, that, that a reduction in the number of faculty that are being hired, um, employed in the country, if the students dip, then that generally means that the faculty will too. Um, yeah, I mean, we can, we can imagine that as the number of students declined, we maintain the same number of faculty and student-faculty ratio declines. Um, but while it's easy enough, I suppose, to imagine that. It's financially not very uh, sustainable. No, and so, no. In addition, to, and in, in, in addition to that is the increasing discount rate so that um, universities and colleges yeah. to be more competitive. For our listeners that yeah. don't understand the term discount rate, the, um, in order to be competitive and draw students in, we reduce the tuition Through waivers charges. and scholarships. Yeah which brings in less revenue. So if you're bringing in less revenue to be competitive, it's really hard to to have the same number of faculty members if your enrollments are dropping. Exactly. And and that might mean um, there's a bit of, you know, we can think of a number of different 
margins that we can make changes. We can change the total number of faculty. We can change the nature of the faculty. So maybe part of it is a reduction in total number. But another way you can have savings is obviously to shift the weight from tenured faculty and continuing faculty to more temporary and adjunct faculty. Um, you know, obviously, as a tenured faculty member, I think there are some losses to the institution when we rely heavily on um, temporary staff who don't have a commitment from the institution in the same way and so aren't as likely to bring a, a mirroring commitment of their own. Mm-hmm. But I understand that the financial pressures are going to create, in all likelihood, um, tough choices for administrators who are looking for ways to continue to offer programs that their communities need, but at the same time facing a total enrollment count that may be lower and, like you said, a, a, a more expensive student body at the same time, um, something's got to give. So, um, you know, I think we, we, we can imagine, you know, is it possible to avoid these decreases in enrollments through increasing enrollments? I would say the answer is, in some hypothetical sense, yes. Um, we can look back to, for instance, the 19... Uh, 90s and 80s, there there was a similar decline in fertility following the baby boom. And so there was uh, some considerable concern in higher education that, well, this would mean that in the echo of that decline in fertility, we would see decline in enrollment. And of course, we didn't see that um, in the 80s and 90s. We saw an expansion in enrollment. Um, I would argue, though, that if we look back to why that was, some of it was that higher ed um, did change. We reached out to adult learners. We expanded um, gender equity so that uh, we reached the 50% mark and then some with women attending. Um, But I think the biggest factor was the returns to education went through the roof. And so everybody wanted to go to college, and that caused the the share of high school graduates going to college to increase from something like 50 to 60%. Well, now we stand with 70% of high school graduates attending college. you know, I, I don't know that we should necessarily hope that the returns to a college degree are necessarily going to spike in the same way in the next decade. Um, if they did, I suppose that would um, drive more people to college. And even though we had declining numbers of young people, we might we might skate through without seeing an enrollment decline. But I, I don't think that we should necessarily just make a strategy of hope based on that. Well, let's just hope that the international economy changes in ways that are beneficial to us right when we need it. I think we need to at least be prepared for the possibility that we will see um, uh, a declining pool of students who are interested just because there are fewer of them. Yes, it's unlikely that any one of those three things that happened in the 80s and 90s will save us again, I think. Um, as you suggest, we've already, we're already now, most universities are, if they're not there already, are approaching 60 40 in terms of females versus males on campus. So that that aspect that, you know, that buffered uh, uh, that in the 80s and 90s has, is not available to us now. It, 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 that All of the things that you mentioned are, are things that saved us once but probably won't save us again, correct? Yeah, I think, you know, I think at this point you'd have to say, well, if you want it with gender equity, we've got to figure out how to speak to males. Um, and draw them into higher education. Yeah, I do hear a number of uh, leaders in higher education, and obviously this is going to be deeply tied to the context of the institution. So for some institutions, this isn't a way through, but some of them are seeing opportunities with the adult learner market. 
Uh, there are so many adults who are in the workplace right now who will need to retool at one time or another. Um, and so I guess these institutions view that as a, an underserved market. Though already we have something like one quarter of full enrollments in the country are of non-traditional age. So we, you know, I, I think there's a real question of as much as we might see the need for adults to come back to higher education, the real question is whether those um, adults see the need to come back to higher education. Right. Um, and there I think some, some research by Gallup and Strata suggests that we have some work to do to, to convince adults that that really is the case. Yeah, the, the other element that I think is different today than it was in the 70s and 80s is, is the public's perception of the return on investment for higher education. Um, we can yeah. make a compelling case for how the ROI is so positive, but I don't think that we've ever seen so much conversation in the media and, and elsewhere about... Um, you know, just kind of the negative things about it's too expensive and and debt's too high and all those kinds of things. Yeah, I've been really discouraged by the persistence of that negative storyline precisely because of the data. Um, you know, the, the, the data point to the power of a higher education degree so clearly, and yet the perception issue remains. I was looking at Georgetown has done a study of return on investment uh, by institution. And you, know, you can question all sorts of things in the methodology, but if we take sort of as given um, and then rank the institutions by return on investment, even the, uh, the least performing institutions uh, were generally putting out a positive return on investment, which is pretty impressive if you think about it. And at the top end, the return is enormous. Um, and the top end doesn't mean the most selective. Um, the, the highest return on investment schools are spread through all different institution types. You can find um, institutions of higher education that will, that will advance you um, towards your life goals. So, you know, we've got that. We, we've got this persistent story about um, the explosion in student debt. And there has been a dramatic increase in the total student debt. But a lot of that is driven by graduate school. Uh, debts, which I think are not the, the story that people are thinking of. When you look at the average debt to a graduate from a four-year public institution, it remains very modest um, and very manageable uh, as compared to the uh, something like $1,500 per month premium that comes with holding that four-year degree. Um, so how is it that we can have all of this evidence of the continued potency of a college degree and still have the perception that the investment might not be worth it. It's troubling. Yeah, it is, tru it is troubling. Um, I, I think our, I, I can't remember the exact number, but I think the average student at our school who graduates with debt has about $16,000. Yeah, just under seventeen. And, yeah. um, and we played that out in terms of what we know about the salaries um, that students are get, earning, you know, after graduation from high school or college and and I think we concluded that um, it took seven years. If you yeah. borrowed 100% of the money and didn't work at all, it would take about mm. seven years to pay back. And then you're ahead and growing in that disparity yeah. through the rest of your life. It's just so clear. But, but there's a lot of elements in play. There are. I think where higher ed 
could pay more attention or better attention would be that uh, for the non-graduates, the people who come to higher education but don't get a degree are often in a, in a more difficult situation. So when we look at the, the student debt default data, what we see is that um, it's not students who have the, the larger debts that are more likely to default, actually. The default rates are higher for uh, lower debt levels, and often that's associated with people who have some college but no degree. So they've gone and they've acquired some debt, but then they don't complete the degree that that gets them the earning power. Um, you know, and so I, I appreciate the critique of those who say we need to do a better job of making sure that uh, students who come to us uh, persist to the end and get their degrees. We still have work to do there. Um, but the, the question that I do continue to hear about the, the broader value of the, the higher education value proposition is, um, you know, I think your, your story is like so many others. The $16,000 debt at graduation as compared to an auto loan or a home loan or the salary that they're likely to uh, attain if they have a, a four-year degree, it, it pales. I mean, that's a, that's a very reasonable investment uh, to make. Yeah, I know a lot of people with more than that on their credit card just for consumer <laughs> debt. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And that's are not are you looking investment. at me when you're saying that? No. Oh, no. Okay. All right. I have no idea what's on your credit card. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, but but the the point is um, that there is a little bit more cynicism about higher ed today than there was in the seventies and eighties, yeah. which makes it a little Absolutely. bit more. It just throws in another element as to how we respond to this changing demographic of um, potential students. Yeah, I think I think we have our work cut out for us. Um, you know, and that cynicism I think we do see uh, in the the traditional age market, um, we can read research done by psychologists on uh, Gen Z and whatever they call the generation after Gen Z, um, and they, because they they saw their parents wrestling with the consequences of the financial crisis in 2008, uh, a lot of them are very skeptical about about taking even modest debt. Um, they're skeptical about um, educational products that aren't directly tied to careers, um, even though we have a lot of evidence that the, those kinds of educational paths that maybe aren't pre-professional nonetheless have, have high returns. So we, we have a skeptical audience there, and then we have the adult learner market that um, also survey data suggests is, is skeptical about um, higher education and, and whether that's their best play for retraining. So there's a lot of skepticism for us to overcome if we're going to try to um, recruit our way out of the declining demographic. So the, the word crisis, which has been used so frequently in the press um, about enrollment trends, I think the word crisis is a synonym with opportunity. And um, if we take it and uh, yeah. respond, what, what, what do you think, what, what are the opportunities here? What, what, what would you recommend? You've got a portion of your book dedicated to policymakers and what we should do. The story isn't all negative because um, understanding the challenges is a positive thing in and of itself and helps motivate us to find solutions or to adapt and, and uh, maybe improve the quality of, of what we're doing or something to that extent. What, what, is your, what are your thoughts about 
this. Yeah, you're, uh, what I found particularly interesting about your book is this, uh, I don't know how you pronounce the acronym, is it HEDI, your Higher Education Demand Index uh, that you developed for this has, it, it breaks things out by college type and size and location and all of that. What we, we would love to know what your recommendations are for this, this opportunity that we're facing. Yes, I think I think that is a, the the right way to look at it. Is that there's there's a challenge in front of us. Um, so that's nothing new for higher education. And if we look at it through the right lens, we can view this as an opportunity to renew our commitment to our mission, or perhaps adjust our mission in in ways that are healthy for the next generation and the next maybe century of students to come. So you know, when we see a declining student pool. Uh, we can think about recruitment, and that that points to access. The last 20 years have been an incredible success story with the increased educational attainment by Hispanics. Um, among high school graduates, Hispanics now attend college at the same rate as the national average. Um, just maybe 15, 20 years ago, there was a double-digit gap between Hispanics and the national average. So that's wonderful news. The surge um, in Hispanic enrollment, you know, I thought perhaps it would be at two-year colleges, because Hispanics have traditionally been more likely to attend two-year colleges. Um, but that's not the case. The, the biggest surge has been at four-year institutions. So we have an opportunity here to recognize the importance of speaking to all of the subgroups in our communities that we can reach. Um, I think we see some interesting new approaches to um, in, enrollment and, and recruitment, um, partnerships with K-12 schools, um, but I think we also then have to imagine once we get students, we have opportunities to focus more on retention. Um, so the, the national average on retention for four-year schools is something around 75%. So that means one in four students that we recruit doesn't stick around for even the second year. Uh, that, that gives us a lot of room for increasing enrollment without having to increase recruitment. Um, there's been some terrific work being done um, on two fronts. One, I think a lot of faculty will immediately think of, well, academic preparation is an issue with retention. And there is some of that. And I think we can think about new support systems. We can think about new curricula. We can think about, for instance, um, mathematics requirements and, and writing requirements that are two of the most pronounced bottlenecks. Are there ways to reduce those bottlenecks? I'm more familiar with the quantitative side. So we know there are quantitative reasoning pathways and statistics pathways in addition to the traditional algebra pathways to get students to the mathematics, not just that they need for general ed, but also a mathematics that is better aligned to their their program of study. Um, in addition to the academic success, retention speaks to a sense of belonging. Um, so I know one institution in, in my state, St. Cloud University, um, has developed a short 10-question questionnaire that they give to first-year students that strongly predict retention, and particularly they're trying to find students who might have a GPA of 3.0 or better and yet leave the institution. And they find these students are um, disproportionately disconnected from the institution. They don't have a sense of belonging. And so by identifying those students who are at risk with low sense of belonging early, they're seeking ways to have faculty and staff reach out to those students, get them involved. I hear other students, other institutions rather, pushing initiatives um, that encourage students to get involved early in fall term in at least one extracurricular. 
Um, so they call it a pick one initiative. Um, I, I think these are all really smart ways of trying to address the uh, challenges that we have with the declining number of prospective students by doing more with the students that we do have, retaining them for, for longer and, and therefore um, simultaneously solving an enrollment problem, the financial problem for the institution, but also better, better fulfilling our mission, which of course is great for our students. Yeah, when I look back when I was a student, which was before you were a student, Nathan. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've actually commented that, uh, and you've said you've been there for 20 years. You, you look like a student in your picture. Um, <laughs> well, that's very nice. I didn't take a picture of the top of my head. So. <laughs> but when I look back at when I was a student, and I think Steve's experience was similar to mine, um, I didn't think anybody really cared if I stayed or didn't stay. I'm 100% sure that no one would have ever noticed or made a phone call or yeah, said a note or yeah. anything. And we're all in on this. Wow, we are we are working um, very hard to make sure that students feel connected and and help them be successful. And if they don't come, we call them and say, what can we do to yeah. help you finish? That's right. That's I've, I've heard institutions find... Go ahead. No, that's a super positive. Yeah, and I, I've heard institutions find that once they start down this path, they, they identify some you know, some really low-hanging fruit. Some of it has to do with our institutional structures. Um, I heard one institution um, where they, they sent an email to every student who was eligible to, to register for the next term, but hadn't by the, the typical registration time. So this was several thousand students at this large institution. And what they, they sent an email and said, you know, we, we noticed that you hadn't re-registered, if there's uh, an issue we can help with, just let us know. And they got thousands of emails back, um, and a lot of them pointing to, you know, it's a library fine that resulted in a hold on my registration. Um, you know, those kinds of registration holds and other bureaucratic processes we have are all there for a reason, so I don't want to suggest that, that these are pointless. Um, but when you start viewing it through the lens of student persistence and success, you might wonder, do, do we really need to go to the nuclear option if you can't register? Or are there other, you know, maybe we put a degree hold. We allow you to keep making progress toward your degree. At the end of the day, you got to pay your library fine. But we're not going to um, stop you from getting into classes in a timely way so that you, know, that you can get the classes that you need if you're a junior, etc. Um, I think there are a lot of things that we can do that have just, we've just had sort of mission creep or or bureaucratic creep, um, all every step of the way probably made sense at the time, but then you step back and look at the whole and say, oh, we can do better than this. Um, so it's an opportunity that way as well to, to re-envision how we operate and how we interact with our students. That puts it in a great um, frame. The, the challenge of continually improving um, our processes, helping students feel welcome, feel a part, the school to try to find ways to, to help make the general education seem more relevant to them. Um, yeah. Yeah. My, my experience is, is that um, students who don't have any idea what their major ought to be but come to universities and flounder around for a while, um, haven't defined the why, why they're there, that they struggle with coming back. And there's a lot that we can do to help students figure that out. Um, to just see ourselves more as a um, full-service 
organization yep. that's really looking out for them and, and takes their needs at heart. It's going to make a big difference. And once you have that perspective, then it, it becomes obvious that everybody on campus has a role to play. Um, you know, our students are interacting with, yes, faculty in classrooms, and yes, enrollment management staff um, and advising staff, but they also interact with the janitor in their dorm. They interact with um, staff at the dining hall. And every one of those touch points can be uh, a resource to them. Um, a student work supervisor can be the person who recognizes a student that is struggling and, and asks the question, hey, what's up? And finds out that, okay, so you flunked the test. Did you, you know, did you know we have an academic support center? Um, and I can at least point you in the right direction to, to get you hooked up with those resources. Um, yeah, I certainly know from my own undergraduate experience, uh, my roommate, is one, one of his closest contacts was, uh, was the janitor in our dorm. Um, I don't know exactly how that relationship started, but uh, ultimately they were watching soap downstairs during the lunch hour almost every day. <laughs> and when he goes back for union, he, he looks her up. Um, because that was, that was the adult who, who apparently had the opportunity and took it to make a relationship and, and in essence say, whatever might happen to some other student, um, getting lost through the cracks is not going to happen to this one. This one is going to have an advocate. This one's going to have an adult who um, is looking out for them. So we all have a role. Well, and I um, I want to thank you for this incredible book, um, Dr. Grau, the, the Demographics and the Demand for Higher Education. Um, spectacular book. Um, very thoughtful. Um, for anybody yeah, we'll, that's... We'll put a link to... Amazon on our website so that anybody that's interested well, can you. pick up the book. And in uh, for any listener in Cedar City that wants to look at I have a couple extra that I can loan you to to take a look at. Uh, we've passed these around. I've bought dozens of these, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> well, my editor appreciates it as well. Yeah, I, I, I deserve a punch card, you know, one free yeah. for every, <laughs> yeah. every 12 <laughs> bought. <laughs> right. But it's so thoughtful and it's so helpful. Well, thank you so much for having me in this conversation. You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. We've had as our guest today Dr. Nathan Graw, professor of economics and the Ada M. Harrison Distinguished Professor of Social Sciences at Carleton College. He's joined us by phone from Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota, where he works We've really enjoyed discussing his book, Demographics and the Demand for Higher Education. We'll post a link to that on our website. We thank Nathan for joining us, and we thank you, our listeners, for joining us. We'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU. For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu dot edu.